one of the things about machine learning is that at present you can get extremely high quality reliable performance if you have enough of the right sort of data and enough often numbers in the millions so something that you would hope to already have because it would be extremely costly to go out and collect it Welcome to Array Podcast, the platform to discover hacks and skills you need at different stages of building your business. I'm your host, Shruti Gandhi, founder and managing partner of Array Ventures. Array Ventures invests in founders focused on solving problems, leveraging big data, artificial intelligence, and machine learning. Visit us on array.vc. Support for today's podcast is brought to you by First Republic. First Republic is a full-service commercial and private bank focused on delivering world-class service across U.S. to the VC space and has been a preferred choice for VC funds, startups, and their employees for over 30 years. To learn more, visit www.innovationfirstrepublic.com or email Samir Kaji at skaji at firstrepublic.com. With a breadth of experience unusual for a young engineer, Lucas has traveled a winding path through tech industry leading from Stanford through Square, Y Combinator, Pinterest, Google, and most recently DeepMind. Find out what he's learned along the way and what he thinks about the future of machine learning. Tell me more about AlphaGo. The audience has read a little bit, I'm sure, you know, I stayed up uh, watching AlphaGo in you know in my bedroom for like in the middle of the night with all the tournaments that were happening but why was it such a big deal and what what was the most exciting you know technical challenge we solved there well alphago is a big deal mainly because what well, two reasons one it was a complete revolution in computer go up to that point uh, while computer Go players were getting to the strong amateur level, they still had absolutely no chance against professional players. So AlphaGo was the first program to beat a professional player, and quite convincingly, 5-0 in an official match. And from there, it just uh, steamed forward until it beat Lee Sedol, who is basically the grand champion of Go for the past... Uh, he, he was uh, the most skilled player in Go for most of the past 10 years. And then why? So that was. Yeah. So why were we able to win at this time? What was the innovation that made that happen? I know, like the last big milestone in in the space AI, you know, deep learning space was like uh, Jeopardy, and then before that was the Chess um, by IBM. So, you know, what was the big breakthrough at this time? Basically, reinforcement learning had its moment in the spotlight. So deep learning and uh, machine learning methods in general have had a great renaissance over the past five years, as everyone knows. Basically, since there's been a confluence of processing power with algorithmic technique, and it turned out to work really well for simple games, which DeepMind had proved in 2014 with its work on Atari. Uh, it mastered most of the um, uh, reinforcement learning based systems, mastered most of the Atari games just completely from scratch. And uh, it also turned out to work really well for Go, partially because Go is based on intuition over pure calculation. Chess was beaten a long time ago because chess, you can handcraft a good value function, in other words, to uh, 
say whether a game is good for one side or the other. And it's easier to it's easier to design heuristics for in some sense. Go is a game that's too big to brute force. The average branching factor is maybe 180 uh, possible moves per board position. That's just way too large to search through in a brute force way. You have to develop some way of approximating it, which is what neural networks are good at doing. Neural networks allowed DeepMind to create a policy network, something to predict good moves, and a value network, something to judge the situation in the game. And combining those two with Monte Carlo tree search allowed for an extremely powerful Go player. So I guess the the options are endless, I would say, with every move that a player has to make. So tell us a little bit more about the the simulations, the value, um, and how is the decision made? Like how does the um, like how is the uh, what am I the word looking for? What am I looking for? The uh, not the algorithm, but the actual um, move. Mo- well, how is it like stored? How is the memory there to remember what move have been made? Have will can be made? Oh, okay. Well, uh, yeah. For the for the input, it's just a go. Uh, it's the position itself convolutionally broken up so basically you have a window scanning over the go board and you have many layers uh, with different extracted features that's what gets put into AlphaGo. so it knows for example what the board position is as well as what the last eight moves were uh, are there any ladders etc etc it has all these features about the present position and from that it has to somehow make a decision about what the best move is so AlphaGo has three main elements the policy network, the value network, and the search. So policy network takes a Go board as input and outputs a probability distribution over moves. In other words, if it's totally sure that one move is the right move, then that will get all 100% of the distribution. But it may also say this move, this move, this move, this move, I'll get 25% or something else. So basically the policy network is responsible for saying what is likely to be a good move. Uh, The value network takes the board state as input and produces a number between zero and one, indicating the win rate for black. Uh, One is 100% black is winning. Zero is 100% white is winning. Normally, it's somewhere in between. And then the search uh, is what allows these things to combine effectively. So going from start to finish, Let's say that AlphaGo's opponent has just played a move. Then it gets this convolutional representation of the board state as input, and it will start running uh, simulations of future board states. In order to do that, at each stage, it will use the policy network uh, to pick the next move, basically sampling from the distribution. Then it will use the value network to evaluate the result after the uh, after the move, and it will continue doing this until it gets down quite deep. It uh, can eventually run a rollout simulation, which goes super quickly to the end of the game, and that helps inform the value in addition to the value network. So that's what is how a simul that that's how one simulation works. So it will run many thousands of simulations in a few seconds in order to 
produce a uh, in, in order to basically inform itself as much as possible about the best follow-up move from the position was this done on a cloud or was this with physical servers uh, th this is done on google hardware so uh, google has its tpus the um the the attempt processing units which are basically enhanced gpus that are optimal for machine learning tasks and AlphaGo ran on some of these which uh, allowed it basically to do simulations super quickly and uh, how it actually makes a decision is whatever it simulated most it chooses its simulation um, direction is informed by the values that it sees but in the end whatever it's run the most simulations on is what it chooses. Does it remember past states and future states? Like, does that get affected every time at all? Well, it, uh, it remembers a certain number of prior moves. So that's just inherent in the, in the position. It can also see a bit of the history. And then what about the future potential moves it might have calculated if the board ends up being in this place it wanted it? Yeah, it also uh, caches the search results so that uh, if, the, if it's investigating the same tree, it can reuse prior results. So do you think our, this, was, this would be possible without special computers on like um, the current cloud infrastructure or the current um, supercomputers we, we have in the markets today? Yeah, it would certainly be powerful to run AlphaGo on, uh, or it would be possible to run AlphaGo on less powerful hardware. Exactly how much power it would lose with uh, lesser hardware, I don't know. But it certainly doesn't take a whole cloud of TPUs to run AlphaGo. Um, so where, where do we go from here? Like, so now that this challenge in some ways was proven out, that this, po this is possible, um, what, What's the next technical challenge to be solved in um, artificial intelligence? In artificial intelligence broadly, I'd say if we can take some of these algorithms that have been proving fantastically successful in game environments and transfer them to something real world related, that would be a, a very meaningful development. So for example, DeepMind already has uh, some work that it's doing in health. It, uh, it has the Streams app for kidney function, which uh, basically warns doctors if the signals look bad for a patient so that they can uh, get to the patient in time. And any application in, yeah, in, in health or in other industries that prove it's not just a game, that it bears out in the real world can be really meaningful. So let's talk about this a little bit where we talk about how you need training examples um, and data to train you know the best alphago system um, or the health ai things like that how much training ex like example how many training examples did you need to get to the point where alphago could beat least at all and yeah so let's start there well, I can't say precisely the details for the uh, Lisa Dole version of AlphaGo, but for the version of AlphaGo that beat Sanhui, so the uh, first version to beat a professional, it needed the, 
it just needed to train on the entire KGS game data set. So KGS is a popular server. Uh, I think that was in the tens of thousands of games. So uh, it, of course, these were sampled many times to form something like 30 million positions, but uh, it didn't actually need all that, uh, all that huge number of games. So in the, in the application of this algorithm for other verticals, um, there's a big question right now where we need all this data. Um, so is that, is that still the case or were you able to do something like what people are calling transfer learning to apply the, you know, the learnings from the gaming infrastructure to the health or other verticals that you're trying to solve problems in? So how, is that what you're doing or are you actually recreating all the data sets and then retraining, retraining it? Well, Trent, Transfer learning only works on quite similar domains. So you could, for example, imagine that transfer learning might work from one variant of Go to another variant of Go. Maybe if uh, somebody said, okay, now we're playing 21 by 21 Go, then the knowledge gained from 19 by 19 would be somewhat useful and allow the new AlphaGo to start off from a higher point. But uh, if you were making Alpha Health or something, that would be a very different domain in which I don't think the I don't think that transfer learning would really be applicable. Uh, one thing that's interesting is the concept of one-shot learning, where you you learn extremely quickly from a very le low number of examples. But uh, in terms of the techniques that produced AlphaGo, it didn't take anything on the order of one-shot learning to get to uh, top human level. It was just training a lot on a clever sampling of a large collection of games. What's one-shot learning? One-shot learning is where you take a very low number of examples and learn from that. That's, and how do you uh, get there? Yeah, that's... No I mean, one that's... knows. That's why it's a research topic. <laughs> so, so, that's, so, you, so you want to solve that problem. And how do you solve that problem, though, today? Well... Currently, you don't. One of, the, one of the things about machine learning is that at present, you can get extremely high-quality, reliable performance if you have enough of the right sort of data and enough often numbers in the millions. So something that you would hope to already have because it would be extremely costly to go out and collect it. That's why machine learning uh, is being used to attack many problems with data sets that are already present. And so if your model is failing, how do you know whether you need more data or a more sophisticated model? So that, that one's actually a pretty standard uh, sort of interview type question. Basically, there's, there's bias and variance. So uh, bias is if, if you have too unsophisticated a model, then it won't actually be able to capture the shape of the data. So in other words, you'll get high error on both training, like what you train from, and the test data. Whereas if you're high variance, then that means you've essentially overfitted the data, captured too much of the structure, and so it's too fragile to change. In that case, you might observe a pattern where your training data, you perform very well, but on your test data, you, you fail because it has a slightly different structure and the overfitting caused it to predict ridiculous things. 
but I'm assuming you know what you're looking for in that case. And so you're able to tell. Well, what's the you in this case? Is it your model that you've trained? Yeah, the model that you're trained, you know what output it's, or, or what is, you know, is the model looking for, or are we as humans looking for from that model? You know, well, let's for- take a specific case. So let's take, for example, a collection of, uh, of points on a, you know, on a Cartesian plane. So usually you can get quite a good fit if you match a high degree polynomial to it. In fact, the higher the degree of the polynomial, the better the fit you can get. The problem is the higher the degree of the polynomial, the better chance you have of overfitting. So if your data turns around once, then you only need a second degree polynomial. If the data turns around two times, then you need a third degree, so on and so forth. But if you get up to like a 10th degree polynomial, then you've, you've fitted extremely specifically to your data. And that means that it's going to have wild gyrations anywhere outside the range of that data because it needed to be so constrained in order to fit it properly. I feel like this is beyond lot of people's understanding like is there a layman version of explaining what you're talking about so the original question was how do you know whether you need more data or uh or you need a better model if you uh, if you have the overfitting problem i.e you train well but you don't trust uh, but you don't test well mm-hmm. then you need more data yeah in other words to broaden it enough that you can't overfit to it anymore. If you have the other problem, you don't train well or test well, so your model is just not sophisticated enough to capture anything, then you need a better model. Right. Um, interesting. So like, where else have you personally been involved in applying what you've learned in other verticals? Well, I've, uh, uh, could you give a little bit more context? You know, like you mentioned health, um, legal is another space people are talking a lot about, like, so feeding in a lot of data. So I guess I'm assuming people are just going after verticals that one, just need like a lot more decisions to be made faster with a lot of input coming in that humans are not able to handle. And that could be mm-hmm. training, it could be uh, health, legal, what other verticals are you thinking that this AI should go tackle next? And there is like, it's a lucrative area um, for AI to go tackle next to accelerate that field. And, you know, and, and then there's more money there as a result of all that. Well, what, uh, one obvious vertical that should be amenable to AI techniques is finance. And uh, if I remember correctly, there have been a lot of announcements recently about finance companies that are doing exactly that, laying off some of their stock pickers, using AI, like replacing some of their portfolio managers, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, uh, I think that was like BlackRock that announced that, um, which is pretty awesome. What, what's your take there? Well, I think it's uh, in addition to BlackRock, also uh, Point72 has had a major uh, AI-oriented focus lately. Uh, I think. Paul Tudor Jones is all about AI now. So I think we, we're reaching a sort of tipping point where not necess- it's not necessarily true that everything will be based on AI, but 
all of the successful enterprises will at least involve AI in some capacity, either using it to pick automatically or combining AI with human intelligence for an augmented intelligence approach. Um, yeah, I think it's just, we're just at this point where humans are just not able to handle all this input coming their way. Uh, we've created a lot more data. And I think the, the middle approach of human in the loop has been one way of some companies tackling it. And then I think some, some other verticals like finance, it seems like if you have enough rules um, in place, you could just take the human away. Is that right? Am I understanding that right? Well, you can't always take the human away. Uh, most commonly, the human is useful to detect edge cases, i.e., well, for example, there, there have been a lot of flash crashes, right? Uh, most of them haven't made the news, but they happen on occasion. And you can, you can always build in safeguards and stop the situations that you can foresee, but there will be times when black swan events happen, things just fall outside your purview. For example, uh, if, if AI had been the entire financial market in, I don't know, 2007 or 2008, there might have been even more wild swings than there were. Um, so, uh, I, I think it's important to, you know, it's important to have a human standing there to recognize when something's not going as planned. So is it saying, so, you, so the other way I've, um, I could see this is like, a human now is able to take more accounts um, while an AI can do a lot of the base work, but create the right alerts for the human to be involved in, in the right accounts at the right time. So instead of being able to handle eight to 10 companies that a analyst tracks, they can now track over hundred plus or maybe more. Um, and, and they get pulled in during anomaly situations, as you said, the black swan situations or things like that. Is that a fair way to go forward for the next foreseeable future? Um, or do you think that there is something more to it um, sooner? There will definitely come a point at which in some domains, the data is simply moving too fast for humans to process. And in that case, you might try to have a limited, fully AI-based system. Yeah. There, uh, there will also be, I mean, there, there will also be many use cases where the perfect relationship between humans and AI uh, is for the AI to process unimaginable amounts of data and to make recommendations, which humans can then decide to act upon. Um, yeah. So, so in the in the analyst example you gave, if it can monitor hundreds of companies instead of tens of companies, then it could surface opportunities that uh, one analyst couldn't have come up with, or even ten analysts, but uh, which would nevertheless be readily understandable once they were highlighted. Um, right. So, do you think that? I mean, this is this asks begs for the obvious question, which is about jobs. And is AI going to replace jobs, or is it going to generate more jobs to make up for the loss? So your question is, what will happen to the net number of jobs? 
Yeah, I, or I mean, I don't think it's net number of jobs. I think it's more like, will the current jobs go away? So will people have to reskill? Or do you think that there is still need for enough humans, even in the AI enabled world with the current skill set that they have? I don't think that uh, AI is threatening to replace a large fraction of human jobs anytime soon. There will certainly be some jobs that, uh, that benefit very much from AI. So for example, if we get uh, self-driving cars, then a large fraction of, maybe we can cut down on the traffic in LA because, uh, you know, a lot, or, or in New York where there won't need to be as many taxis anymore. So there will be domains where a large percentage of the jobs in that domain may be transferred to AI. However, I think there will be plenty of opportunities generated as well. Which you're talking about the new, new kinds of jobs, um, you know, which I guess is another topic here. But do you think AI is going to replace software engineers anytime soon? AI replacing software engineers. I, <laughs> well, as someone who has uh, struggled with a computer for many years and encountered all manner of ungodly errors, I don't think that AI is going to grasp the subtlety of programming before, let's say, it at least grasps the subtlety of language well enough to have a Turing test passing conversation. Um, why is that? It might be able to really help out. So it, it might deliver those order of magnitude productivity improvements that software engineers have been dreaming of since the 80s, probably longer than that. But I don't think it will fully replace software engineers, at least until it's, uh, at least until you can interact with it in a semi-human way. Right. Um, so is, is what Hollywood is talking about is like exactly the way AI will go um, moving forward? Or how do you think it will actually develop? I, I don't feel confident enough in any one direction to offer a prediction there. <laughs> I mean, I'd love it. I'd love it if we got AI that functioned just like humans. I figure that it will probably take a lot of subdomains first before we figure out how to combine those subdomains into something that uh, resembles a general AI with, uh, you know, with a consciousness and a personality. Hmm. Um, what you think that there are like subdomains, like two, three, four subdomains that need to come to a decent point before we get there? And what are those subdomains you think? Well, there's semantic understanding. It needs to be able to read a book and tell you what's in it, listen to a conversation and understand the perspective of the speakers. So it basically needs to be able to parse language. Uh, it also needs to be able to conceptualize. So to build a, a network in its head, a, a sort of, uh, well, a knowledge graph that is also mapped to the real world. And I'm not really sure what, uh, like what subdomains in terms of, uh, 
yeah. Well, what what other subdomains is going to need to conquer? I would if it say maybe the language, then it's doing pretty well already. Huh. What about vision? Like sensing, vision, um, sentiment. Uh, I would yeah, say those. Yeah, uh, vision. I mean, vision is pretty far uh, along. It's it's gone through transformative improvements in recent years, and you you can even do you know style transfer from paintings to photographs with neural networks. Yeah. Well, one last question, um, or maybe like let's say two last questions. What are the some typical mistakes that companies? Uh, are or will make in an attempt to apply AI to their data. Um, so do you have any, I guess, piece of advice for companies, corporations trying to move in that direction? I, I think that the two most likely mistakes would be along the lines of one, thinking that it's an automatic solution and two, trying to use it to replace things that could be better served by a little bit of uh, human intelligence. So if, if you try to use uh, AI to it, just wish a problem away, maybe it was, uh, may, maybe you could have had someone figure that out uh, in, in their head. And if, also, if you just say like, okay, we've got uh, these, these million rows of data and let's train a neural network on it and then whatever predictions it outputs we accept as gospel, that's also going to be problematic because typically AI requires uh, a lot of refinement before you understand both uh, what it means and why it means it. Like, like why, uh, why it's getting the right answer or whether it is. Mm -hmm. um, interesting. Well, so you're still saying that there is definitely a human component to be dealt with before you just start automating a lot of these things. Yeah, being too automatic about the application of AI is probably the most likely problem. So my final question is that everyone probably wants to know, but do you believe in singularity? And if so, when will it happen? <laughs> uh, singularity, uh, believing in the singularity is the religion in vogue. But uh, we do. We need religion. I, it brings us together, Lucas. <laughs> everybody needs something to believe in, whether it's uh, whether it's secular or religious. <laughs> but uh, I let let's just say that I'm not going to rely on the singularity happening. I ah. do look forward to the advent of human level AI at some point, but I don't think that necessarily means we're going to upload all our brains to the internet. Oh, shoot. Uh, that's, that's, uh, that's a bummer. I was looking forward to leaving my amazing, brilliant, complicated brain in the cloud. Um, well, soon. you know, uh, Elon Musk is uh, building that neural lace now. So once it grows into your brain and exactly mimics your neural structure, then <laughs> you can have yourself reincarnated at will. Well, <laughs> at least that's how it works in the, in, in Ian Banks. Uh, he's the one who came up with the concept of the neural lace. And uh, yeah, you can be revented. I think that's his term for it. If uh, if your original body dies, that's uh, that's pretty much like religious salvation, right? That or, or like in another episode of Black Mirror. On that note.
Thank you, Lucas. Really appreciate it. And I am sure the audience will have a ton of questions. So we'll have you back on in the show sometime in the future. Thanks so much. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Bye.